I'm so glad to see that you're feeling better. You had a very close call. But you're gonna be all right. Now, just lie still. I'm gonna give you something. It's gonna make you feel even better. He's drinking that 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 coffee. Yum. Slurp it. Slurp it. Slurp it. Do you guys like slurp sounds? Well, guess what? It's staying in the episode. <laughs> Welcome to BDMFT. I'm the beard. I'm the Fetty. You're the dick. I'm the dick. There's no Fetty in the Bearded Dicks musical fun time. Bearded Dicks Fetty time. <laughs> We're changing the name. <laughs> I was re-listening to our last BDMFT, and I said I was the dick. I was like, what the fuck was wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I'll never be the dick. Uh, yeah. So we, uh, we're going to be doing the recap of games and music from 2020 and 2021. And this may come out in two parts, depending on how long it takes us. It's very possible, but we're going to be recording it all at once. It's so true. We are. We might be quite slap happy by the time we get to our <laughs> 2021 into, into that. Let's just open the disco box and get to it. Scream! <laughs> It's going to be over for a long time, this episode, guys. Yeah, it's quite unhappy. So the the first record I'm going to talk about, my list is, my, my list at the end of 2020 was like three things, and now with a lot of time to listen to all the things that didn't get to hear from 2020 and 2021, and I'm still playing catch up, uh, I, I'm, I've got a much longer list, so I'm going to be blazing through this stuff. I'm only going to be playing samples of, of a couple things. The first one is ISO, The Faintest Hint, which was her new album on Audiologic. This was her first studio album in, I think it was like 15 years. And wow. Yeah, I, I'm i not one to pre-order anything for the most part, because I think that's such a... Like, I understand from an economic point of view of these small labels, movie companies, whatever, you know, less with games, fuck you, they already have billions of dollars, but... You know, if they get money now, they can finance that release or the next release or whatever, but also prove it's coming out. Yeah. You know, Alexa had pre-ordered the Hannah Diamond LP for me, and then it took nine months to come. And part of that was COVID, but also, like, no, that's not acceptable. <laughs> so, um, anyways, but I did pre-order this because ISO is just wonderful she's i've played her a little bit on the show before she plays this extremely delicate style of sort of folk like singer songwriter psychedelic folky but, but folk isn't really right it is really more singer songwriter in a lot of ways it, she has this obviously she's japanese she's married to michio kurihara and uh she has this this feeling in her music sometimes of in like a really artsy anime it might be the kind of thing that the you know female characters like sadly walking through the park to or something like that it's a very particular style and it's 
it would seem wildly out of place in my interest, but for the fact that obviously it's Japanese, so that it then starts to track. This record is the, in some ways, the most delicate record she's ever done, uh, but not quite as quiet and brittle as her earliest stuff and scratchy. It's way more fleshed out in terms of sound. There's two tracks that feature, I think it's Atsuo from Boris, and, and they've got you know electric guitar and there's real drums and and all this stuff. It's it's her most realized arrangements, but they can still be super delicate. I'm not gonna play any of it because it's the kind of record that's like you need to sit through the whole thing. Not yeah, it's partially that, and it's also it's 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 like music that's too beautiful to exist in this world kind of a thing like it it feels like a gift from the heavens in and the like i mean that in the most real sense like it's it's sort of out of time and timeless and just like it's wow like it, it i don't know it taps into something that most music doesn't, and uh, I think it's partially the style like lend itself to this almost um, fragment shard of a memory kind of quality. But yeah, really, really, really amazing, and uh, maybe my favorite album of the year, but definitely one you just need to go listen to. I think the whole thing's up on Bandcamp, but if you can get a copy of the record, I mean, it ships from Austria, but it, it wasn't too outrageously expensive when I bought it. And uh, but is it better than Lincoln Park's Hybrid Theory? I'm. I think I'm willing to say it is. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe you finally found an album you like more than the Hybrid Theory. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time, but here we are. You got that guy carrying that flag with those dragonfly wings tattooed on you, so. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah. So the next one is Autiker's Sign LP, and. I I did not hear this when it came out. I sort of was vaguely aware that Autiker put out this album and then put out a sort of sister long-form EP slash second LP called Plus. And they... I, I've really been out of the loop with Autiker since Exile came out. I've, I listened to a little bit of LSEC when it was released. I never even heard the NTS sessions. But I wound up checking this out, I think, on Spotify when I was in an Autiker mood in um, earlier in 2021, and then I heard this record and was like, oh, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why was I sleeping on this? It's, it's definitely a step back in terms of scope and ambitiousness compared to the NTS sessions, which was eight CDs of, like, full, like eight full albums as one album kind of a thing. I mean, it was insane. And, um, you know, this was just a single LP. I mean, no, I take that back. It might be a double. I think it's. I think it's just one LP. I think it's like a pretty reasonable amount Did of music. Did you have it? I do. I can't tell by looking <clears throat> at the spine, but it might be a double. But who would it, have thought an Autocar album would have made it on this list? Yeah. Well, you know, but it, it's been a long time, and I was very pleasantly surprised. The last track is one of their classic, really gorgeous synth oriented um kind of like emotional ambient pieces and it's just a brilliant closer most of the closers the closer on exile was easily the highlight of that whole album uh but most of their albums their closers are the if not the best track pretty fucking close to it and this one is just like oh it's all the things 
there is a slight feeling having now heard the NTS sessions and some other stuff of you know it's slightly less exciting but I personally am totally fine with them going from the biggest scope they ever had to saying we're gonna we're gonna refine this into just like finely polished diamonds right. so um, you know I didn't hear it until 2021 but it really made an impression when I did uh, the next one I'm going to play some samples from. So, speaking of no surprises on the list, UVB76 has to basically show up anywhere that they put out records. Uh, and their sister labels, you know, now too. I've been picking up the Droogs releases uh, simultaneous with them coming out. And this was one of the first ones I got, which is uh, a split between Gremlins Justa and Kalu on the one side and then Frisk on the B side and the Gremlins track with the other artists is called Monolith and I'm just going to play it here in a second but it's it's like another one of these really nice it's it's a little repetitive in its structure but its component parts are super excellent and it has this kind of clockwork quality to it that reminds me a lot of this one particular homemade weapons song from the Hyra CP and it's just the kind of thing that, like, when I first... I mean, I was just keening the shit out of the record. Both sides <laughs> of it are really good. I like the City Limits stuff. It it has um, a kind of more of a Metalheads vibe. But, you know, when you're cutting up almonds and doing all that kind of shit, uh, that always works for me, so... Cut up almonds? Yeah. Time lover of Tekich, 
uh, a big part of that, and I've talked about this over and over, is is the cut up drums and you know drum and bass where you've got a nice backing drum loop and then some good synths and blah blah blah. Fine, great. A lot of that stuff can be really good, but the best drum and bass for me is always uh, a focus on the chopped up and and keeping the rhythmic elements interesting. I mean, there's there's so many drum samples you can use, but even if you're just using an, an Amen and, and a couple other sort of basic breaks, if you're filtering between them and cutting it up, uh, it's, it's just so much more interesting to me. I, I hate lazy drum programming, and this song is, it's perfect. It's just that kind of a thing. It's like, it, the when the drums first kick in, it's like, oh yeah, fuck yeah. And then when they start getting cut up, you're like, oh fuck yeah. Like, oh fuck yeah, you know? On a synth level and other things like that, it's it's not you know, really like Tekich or anything. But uh, yeah, it, that was just, I picked, I it was one of the, I heard a sample. I was like, good, that's all I need. I mean, it's it's UVB, it's... You know, I expect like, it to be good. Yeah, people say, does a bear shit in the woods? It's like, do you dig Fetty and Ben the Beardo like UVB? And if it puts out something, are they going to review it on BDMFT? Probably. Yes, the yes. answer is yes. Yes. So... Yeah, and uh, it's funny, I just realized I sklip, skipped over in my list a different UVB record, so we'll jump into that in a second. But yeah, this this one was really nice. I've come to find that I basically like almost everything I've heard by Gremlins from 2016 onwards, and uh, he's he's been going for a lot longer than that, and I've got some of his earliest work, which is fine, but definitely he's matured hugely as a producer, and the... After Dark EP he did with Homemade Weapons is really, really good. And he's also got uh, some... Well, he's one of the guys from... Um, or, I think I misspoke. After Dark's on Samurai, but he's one of the co-founders of UVB. And so whenever he shows up, he tends to, to bring the fire. But they've also reissued some of his older records. One of which is... Um, the What was it? The Orchid and... Or, Fuck, it was, it's on Paradox's label. I just happened to pick it up in passing last year or the year before, and then it immediately sold out. It's like the fifth pressing of it, and they're selling again for like 50 bucks of 12-inch. It's insane. But it's really, really good. I'm like, oh, I fucking get this. I was like, I fuck with this, you know? He, he's got this nice style of, it's it's a little bit techy, but it's it's got some tough drum programming, you yeah. know? And a nice use of space, like so many of our modern producers, where it really... That that Fotech and Source Direct influence is more apparent in that use of space where, you know, for a long time so much of all electronic music in the you know, mid two thousands kinda onwards, a compression, everything felt so compressed and just so and I love a lot of hardcore techno where like the compression is what makes it so punchy and all the rest of this, but you know, now things have kinda gone back the other way and it's like there's this influence of dub techno sort of a, of a basic channel variety where the thing that you notice the most is the space between the sounds, you know, it's just like this, this economy of elements and, and sound design. So, um, but to that end, and, and I would say slightly more tightly coiled and like, ah, oh, is clarity came back for the, I think this was his big sort of comeback EP after being out of the game for a while at least from a production standpoint. And so it doesn't, as far as I know, the official title is just the catalog number, which is UVB 7616. And 
it's uh, he's another producer where most of his records are they're all out of print. Some of them are really expensive, and he doesn't really have a huge discography, but most of it's all very good. And it is halftime style, so it's you know the the beats are hitting sort of like in a dubstep style instead of on the the bars of traditional drum and bass as, as far as like you know there's half as many kind of snare hits yeah. as, as normal and it's there's definitely this industrial quality at one point i know i wrote a review that said like it's sort of like the vivenza's take or i'm sorry a drum and bass take on vivenza who's a french like hyper industrial artist and that may have been a bit of hyperbolism, <laughs> but on the other hand, the very mechanical and just sort of like piston pounding, just these like, well, I'm going to play it, but the style of it, I'm willing to stand by that. A little bit of hyperbole, admittedly, but... He's definitely, without going into, like, full-on industrial kind of territory, like, this is some tough shit. And this is not about uh, drum loops and breaks and stuff like this. This is way more of a sort of programmed, you know, kind of a mechanical thing, so... pretty good right it's pretty good (laughs) it's like it's cool i mean we just listened to the first three minutes of the first track which is called torsion and it takes like a a good minute or so it's not even like regular drum and bass song of you know build up for a minute and a half do your drop it's like burial level very quiet chill atmospherics before it even really starts to get going and then it's not until three minutes in where you finally get the full range of the sort of ugly synth sounds that are coming in and 
Yeah, I mean, Vivenza is like this, just the sound of machines pounding, 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 typically at a much higher BPM. Um, so, you know, it's, it's this isn't quite that claustrophobic and just relentless, but there's definitely a sort of, again, I hate to use the metaphor, but like clockwork kind of component. Yeah. And, you know, or more of a assembly line or however you want to put it, but it, it has that kind of industrialized quality where... It feels more like a techno song than it, it does really a drum and bass because of the way that there's there's no breaks and shit like that. The other thing about the CP is that it ends with his remix of All of Them Witches by Overlook, which, how could that be bad? And yeah, it's not. I, yeah. I mean, I that that's... Overlook. Yeah, and the original song is is still better, especially in the sense of it sits... Like, that's... I mean, that EP is... I mean, it samples the witch. It's the whole nine yards. Yes. You know, we've already been over this, but... Uh, it's everything we want. Yeah. On the other hand, though, uh, Clarity, rather, completely converts, overlooks... He maintains the a lot of the vibe, but makes it feel like a Clarity song, and uh, it's it matches well with the rest of the CP, so it doesn't just feel like a fourth track to fill it out. It's And the... UVB 76 is they keep changing their sleeve designs and they're going to like sort of more standardized stuff. There's not new art on every one, like new drawings by, um, uh, was it Jay Lewis, but kind of recycling things and then doing more template stuff, but they're changing it each year. It's, it's been interesting to see how it goes. Um, but yeah, this, this EP was, had me trying to dig back more into clarity's work, which is a very expensive endeavor and not to get, too far into the past, but he has this older 10 inch release with rough house. That's two tracks and typically is selling in the $50 range. But I will say that I've heard every rough house record, uh, which is pessimist is part of rough house right. as a precursor. And they are similar, although like have a very techno influenced, like pounding. This could just as easily be in a Bergain techno set as, as it would be in a drum and bass one. Um, the two of them together, it's fucking murder. Those two tracks, when I first downloaded it a couple of years ago, I was like, it was, I just, I've listened to the shit out of it. It's so fucking good. And it's, I think of like, as far as to spend $50 on a record, it's one of those where it's like, this would really be worth it because I fucking love this. Like they're just two of the best songs in either group's discography. But anyway, when I get that record, I'll gloat later. So Hannah Dye, or I'm sorry, uh, Grunt Spiritual Eugenics is the next one. Uh, this is the first double album by Grunt since Sierra of Decay, which is is basically a double album, but the second CD is more just like a lot of harsh noise stuff and not as thematically linked as the the main first disc is. But this is like a proper double album. It's a double LP. It's um, It just feels like a real double album and like the best kind of double albums, you're just getting twice as much really good material. And you know, the, of course there's a little bit more room with that kind of length to have, uh, some tracks that are less, you know, immediate impactful anthems or things like that. But grunt just like, just doesn't stop making it the best power electronics for it's grunt, man. Yeah. I mean, for my taste, I, it's tough because, you know, before the, his album before this was Castrate the Illusionist and that album went, like, you're always looking back. So 
you had Petrullian Ruli, which is this amazing uh, piece about Finnish history and war and all this stuff, and 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 really took sound wise all to a new level. And then you got World Draped in a Camouflage, which was still really far-reaching sound design, but not didn't do it for me as much. Then Myth of Blood, which was like fuck all that noise. We're gonna go into like a way more '80s style, just like shrill feedback and this much softer in some ways, uh, but like so ugly and. And then Castrate the Illusionist was like, ah, it feels like there's a grindcore influence almost. Like, these tracks are shorter, but they're so fucking, oh, just like. And then this is kind of, fall. it really, it felt like it pulled all of those things. It really felt, to me, closest to World Draped in a Camouflage. Uh, but it had a lot of the immediate sharp attack that Castrate the Illusionist does. And there's, oh, fuck, I mean, I don't even know. I think I'm gonna. I'll skip playing a sample because, in part, it's like hard to pick a song. Yeah. Um, but it's really, it's really good. Yeah. Nah. You know, I'm just play, play a little bit. Let's see what we got here. We are still the seed of the giants. It lies within you. You are the ones who bear the flame because of that seed. And you're the ones who will point out the pathways ahead through the darkness for those yet to come. That's that's Seed of the Giants, but I I have to say that I like a lot of times his it it all kind of depends. My favorite grunt stuff is normally about like the way that the vocals come out in any given track. Yeah. But you know he's just at this place now where 
the sound design, he has such a wonderful balance of being able to make things clear and, um, but still have sharp attacks, still have a brutality to the sound. You know, you push the volume and your ears are going to ring, uh, but you can hear everything. It's, it's without it feeling like overly clean or digital or anything like that. You know, he, there will only be four layers or something like that, but each one is just expertly done, and it's there's everything from the insectoid sense to the feedback to the perfectly affected vocals or warped orchestral sounds, stuff like that. Uh, it all comes into play. Let me go turn off the air. Okay, so uh, the next one, the, the album was originally released, although I don't think I talked about it in 2019. I just briefly mentioned it earlier. Uh, Hannah Diamond's Reflections, so it was supposed to physically come out in 19. It got super delayed. I don't think I got it until um, the the end of 2020. It was it was like I don't know. It was it was six months to a year. It was closer to a year. But I haven't really listened to Hannah Diamond as much in the past year or so. I've been way more on a Charlie XCX kick. But she was my one of my main gateways into the whole PC music, like crazy hyper pop bubblegum bass, all these types of things. And the record was, uh, is really, really good. It's only downfall is that some of the best songs on it came out years before the record did. So it's not like all new material. Half of it was all available beforehand. Right. But, it's the first time her music's been on a physical release other than I think they did some CD comps that featured some of her earlier tracks. But it's super gorgeous. The pressing is wonderful. When I finally did get it, I was like, oh, this is this is great. It sounds amazing. And um, it's nice to have such digital music on a, uh analog format. So that was, you know, kind of a 2019 album, kind of a 2020 album, but definitely wonderful. So the next one was um, Internal Rot, Grieving Birth on Iron Lung and 625 Thrashcore. And this is one of the few newer Grindcore albums I've picked up in the last couple of years. My buddy and old roommate recommended it to me. And I had heard good buzz about it, but I, you know, I'm always sort of nervous because Grindcore is one of those things that descriptions of good and bad Grindcore are like the same thing. So you just never really know. <laughs> And most, you know, even like grindcore that's by the numbers is still good if you like grindcore a lot of the times. But this is this is definitely like way more. It, there's a I guess a death metal influence in a certain sense, but not in the bad way that it's overly long or anything like that. It's like a twenty minute record, you know. I think there's twenty songs in twenty minutes or something close to that. But it's it's they have a wonderful guitar tone and a just general overall like heathen hordes at the gates kind of a feel to it and the cover of it was a fucking nightmare because it has this image of this woman and do you remember this i showed it to you and i i was like i know who this is we have to figure out who this is like i know i've seen this this woman this Thank is from you. a movie i'll show you the album and i show you the sample and i did eventually figure it out and i'll tell you what that is in a second but yeah this is this is internal rot and this shit is this is fucking... Mm. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
like all good grindcore should, they don't shy away from blast beats. You know, how am I supposed to know it's grindcore if I'm not hearing yeah, blast Yeah, there beats? has to be blast beats. And they they know how to do it. But they have this, like, more detuned guitar, downtuned, uh, and, like, gruffer kind of vocals. So, but the picture on the, the front, it was, I mean, it was driving me fucking It's driving nuts. me nuts right now. Yeah, so it's Rebecca Hall, who's an actress, and... The worst part is she's... So, on the cover, it's her, but she's got white-ish hair. And normally she has much darker hair. And so, I'm, like, looking up. And eventually, I don't even know how I fucking found it. It was somewhere. I think maybe it was a YouTube or or something comic. Because, like, somebody else was like, how do I know what this is? It was the YouTubes. And it's her from the movie Red Riding, from the Red Riding trilogy of films from the the first movie which i think is red riding 1978 with andrew garfield Mm -hmm. and sean bean and she plays this sort of kind of femme fatale slash kind of damsel in distress and it's the part i think right before she fucks andrew garfield and eventually i finally figured it out because i think it was like oh it's rebecca hall and then i'm looking through her letterboxd you know imdb and i'm like what the fuck is it from though and uh so that was as much fun as getting the album and just enjoying the piss out of it but yeah a wonderful grindcore record so i'm just gonna blast through the rest of these because there's also a shitload of reissues from 2020 and we just don't want to this this would just take hours if i was to dive more in depth but Oh, the song we played though was uh, was it "Eaten by Crabs" and "Failed Organum" uh, will be in there. So, my next recommendation would be Kimbakushi, which is uh, another Miko Ask the Miko Aspa side project. He put out three tapes on I- IOPS in 2020, all in these like lavish plastic boxes with full color booklets and all this stuff. And he had done one tape under this name before. It's uh, the project's name comes from the art of rope bondage and in japan and well the first one is just this like noisy racket it's good but i didn't blow my socks off this is has way more of a kind of a rock and roll vibe almost like it's like instrumental noise rocky like it's got some groove to it and places and it but it still has drums and harsh noise and it's you know, it's not a style that you hear very often, and I would associate it with what I call scumcore, which is, I've talked about a little bit in the past, but is this sort of, like, amalgam of harsh noise and uh, more traditional instrumentation to achieve something that's different than what noise rock sets out to do and is more of, you know, more for the harsh noise head than for somebody looking for, like, a noisier rock. But, yeah, really good, really gorgeous-looking release. Such a nice, like, complete package. Uh, and the... Didn't I get you a, an art book on that type of Japanese bondage? Yeah. Yeah, which I've used thoroughly for artwork for my releases since then. So that's been a, a huge get. That was yeah. one of the most utilitarian gifts I've received in the past few years. I've... The spine's completely worn out, and I've just taken pages out of it and then used them for flyers and all sorts of stuff, so. Very expensive. Yeah, well, you know, it's getting its use. So, uh, (laughs) the next next one is Meta Device, which is Andre, uh, or uh, Andre Kohilo, Kohilo, I 
I'm so sorry. BDMST, where you come for the pronunciation of <laughs> other things. I, I never get your name right, and I apologize I, in my, my dumb American tongue. But uh, it's called Ubiquitarchia. Ubiquitarchia, I think is it. So he put out two cassettes last year for this project. Uh, this one was on Malignant and is more towards the kind of rhythmic industrial. It has a, it, what feels like as much of its really well done industrial music, although definitely much different than what he did with Sector 304, uh, it also feels like there's influence from more traditional electronic music and, and IDM and things like that in there, which could just be my own background seeping into what I'm hearing. But it was just a really wonderful tape that had a little bit more of a looser form compared to the CD that came before it. But you know, it's got, it's experimental in the sense of it, it, and it, that it's so musical in a genre, which is typically not. Not very musical. Yeah. And he has such, uh, many of his influences, they're more on the, uh, real art side, but they, uh, are in sync with a lot of my influences and interests. So, you know, there's a lot of Cronenberg, there's a lot of, uh, J.G. Ballard, there's, um, that kind of body horror meets the mundanity of our dystopian nightmare and sex stuff and all this, but like filtered in this, this particular kind of, you know, biomechanical way without being uh, corny EBM or anything like that. Very, very nice tape, really great presentation as I would expect from Malignant. I want to talk about Regis's album, Hidden in this light, hidden in this is the light that you miss. Uh, I did not hear this record. I still don't own it. I was going to buy it very recently, and then I wound up going with an extremely expensive box set I'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah, I did not even give it a listen until December of 2021. And part of that was I foolishly read one review of it before, like right after it came out, and they talked about there was a lot of for as much techno as there was, there was as much sort of ambient, dark ambient, interlude type of stuff, and that it was good, but considering how long it had been since Regis had put out a proper album, slightly disappointing that it wasn't just eight tracks of balls-to-the-wall techno. And so I was like, well, you know, with the cost of importing records from the UK and all the rest of that, I was like, maybe I don't need this. <laughs> and what a fucking dumbass I was. <laughs> Because it is true, it it has way more uh, atmosphere and falls way more into the, I don't want to say trap, but kind of trap of a lot of electronic artists where they feel like they can't make an album that's just all bangers, and that's not true. We just recently reviewed Gymnastics on the show, and that's an album that's oops all bangers, <laughs> and and it's that's what makes it so such a masterpiece. But this is like a much more adult version of Regis. Like it still has that post-punk influence. It still has a hard edge and the techno tracks that are the techno techno tracks, they really bump hard, but there's just not as much of them as one would might like. But the nice thing about it is that other than one song that definitely feels like a rework of master side B, 
Uh, it feels like all new material, and I feel like Regis has done a lot of kind of recycling of certain things over and over in the last 10 years that are always good, but they feel like, you know, variations on a few ideas, whereas this is like... Brand new. Yeah, this is like, here's a new album of new stuff. And um, it's it's really good. Like, any other artist would feel extremely accomplished to release such a classy album. And I'm not disappointed. I mean, it's on my year-end list. But there is that one part of me that says, just give me eight tracks of slamming, uncompromising <laughs> techno. Another Miko Aspa. He had a really great year last year. And I didn't even hear the Clandestine Blaze album. But uh, Sadio's Piss Drinking Slut. So... This is a seven I wonder inch. why you like this album, Frank. <laughs> it's just a seven inch. It's not even an album. It's just a two song uh, single. But it's it, it has... It sounds like what it, it's titled. It, <laughs> it really, between the samples in the song itself and just the overall vibe, this audio project has gone from being a really cool diversion or, or side thing that it felt like Miko was doing to... Uh, fully fleshed out and realized and uh the fact that he isn't normally doing vocals as much on it and it's mostly uh i think it's commando skin graft is the other guy but it has a different feel and it and a lot of it feels very 80s influenced it's very raw uh and rugged but it still has you know what is clearly somebody who's been doing this for 25 years or whatever it's been uh that level of experience behind it so the uh, there's generally a rough and ready kind of thing to it but because the people are so talented it really it it's quite nice so that was wonderful and then to round out the list of new stuff is tater with sector 304 the hermeneutics hermeneutics of the hunt has gone full circle. God, it's a long title. Yeah, so it's it's like a it's, light novel title. Yeah, so it's a it's two remastered uh, versions of Tater songs from a which Tater by itself is, <laughs> sounds like Tater Dots. <laughs> um, he's anything but but two two tracks from a seven inch he did, and then reworks of uh, his material by Sector three hundred four is my understanding and it the first two tracks are great the seven inch stuff is is really good material and uh for those who don't know tater he's uh it's the power electronics project that came out of fecal love which is a long-running italian ultra sleazy like shit noise and his his voice his power electronics voice and delivery and style has a level of like creepy nasty to it that is enviable and uh really excellent and this album with this sort of reworked material with sector 304 and it's the last sector 304 release is um fucking brilliant like it's it's it becomes so much more disembodied and foul and atmospheric and and just this like deconstruction of what tater is and is like into this just like fucked up nightmare the music it's really really good i was very happy and if this is how sector three or four is going to end their legacy then it's a definite high note and especially because it's it's with the influence like they're more of the 
you know, you read their song titles and it's it's uh, Shinya Tsukamoto stuff and J.G. Ballard and things like that and more of a traditional industrial themes and having this added edge of like sexy sleaze pervert shit on top of it is like mm, that's a good fit for me <laughs> and it comes in a gorgeous little uh digipack uh not even digipack they're like what are they called digi folders or whatever it's like a paper sleeve thing but it looks really nice and uh has Tizbor's artwork all over it and uh and it it's one that has a secret track at the end too there's Ooh. like you know Love a good secret track, Yeah, it's man. like 85 songs of silence um, for however many seconds each, and then a big, long, weird amalgam mix at the end. So, yeah. Good shit. All right. And then even quicker, we're going to hit the reissues. 2020 had a million of them. I only picked up some of them. They were all bangers. Uh, Ob, Spindrift LP. Uh, originally a tape, I want to say. I think it was the original release on Gross. That was reissued by Robert Leopold. Sounds brilliant. Looks super nice. Really glad to have a very classic piece of Aub in my discography, or in my collection, rather. So Tommy Carlson reissued Mania's three Swedish tapes that were super out of print and deeply desired by many. Eros and Massacre, If They Move, Kill Em, Miserable Disposition. These were supposed to come out to help pay for Keith's medical bills. He passed before the project could be realized. Tommy decided at the end of the day, yeah, I'm going to do this. He's selling them at basically cost. They're mostly dubbed on chrome tapes. They sound insanely good. They're very loud, but very clear. Uh, if you're a Mania fan, like buy these, email Tommy. You're a fucking moron if you don't. Like these are so good. Uh, Masayuki Takiyanagi, New Direction Unit. So blank forms editions which is a sort of jazz avant label coming out of new york they're doing amazing reissue work and uh they put out these two um really important uh free improvisation free jazz records by masayuki takiyanagi's new direction unit which was a really influential uh free improv group from japan they come with these gorgeous and wonderful liner notes. Uh, they're true to the original LPs. And the only thing I would complain about is that they have like over 30 mu minutes of music aside. Jazz is the only genre where you can do that on an LP because typically there's so much free space that there's actually way less music than there is like on a techno record. Right. But, and they sound really good. So it, it, it worked out, but it seemed slightly dubious to do that. <laughs> Uh, in this modern day and age, but that's how they were originally presented as well. Uh, I was really glad to to get them. They're very very nice and Takiyanagi's and and in general free jazz and free improv is something I've only gotten into in the last two years. And for the most part, when I listen to it, I feel like such a pretentious asshole. Just, oh, you it, like jazz? Yeah, right. Like, but on the other hand, it's there's uh, especially these compared to the Karu Abe reissue I have he live performance they did together. They're, these are like really they they're a little easier to get into. Let me put it that way. And it's the kind of music that's like it's like listening to Fushi Shusha or Keiji Haino or some other really amazing avant artists where it's like you really gotta turn off the lights, maybe burn a stick of incense, put on the headphones, 
give it the time, give it the space. Like I, I don't listen to these records unless I'm just listening to these records. Yeah. You're not driving around bumping this in your car. Fuck, no, no. I feel, I feel like I'd have an aneurysm or drive my car into a wall. <laughs> it's, it's not that kind of music. It's like, it's heady shit. Like you gotta, you gotta give it some thought and attention. And it's cool too. Cause in the liner notes, they talk about the guy, the guy who writes the notes was a famous jazz like Japanese jazz critic and writer and intrinsic in the scene when this stuff was happening. And he says, this is the order of the tracks you should listen to, not as they're pressed, but as, uh, you know, in this order to get the best effect. So I listen to it as it's laid out, which is not even chronological. And then I listen to it in his preferred order. And I was like, this guy fucking, this guy fucking gets it. Like, this guy fucks. And to me, like the fact that I could listen to a free improv like 20 minute percussion piece it sounds like you know like just banging on like a random drums like it's like all the worst things you can imagine but when you hear a master do it and it's done with like the precision and and vision and all that it's like this is fucking amazing you know it's it's like oh this is why if you get jazz, then you just get it, kind of a thing, you know. Fuck you. Yeah, no, it's but like you know what I mean. Like that's how it feels. It's like okay, I can't really talk to this, talk to anybody about this, but like I fuck with this. Yeah, my experience with jazz was over twelve years ago, going to this more swanky bar down south, mm. where all these people are like you know wearing button downs and dressed up real nice and having expensive cocktails, and I'm sitting there smelling like weed, half drunk. Yeah. In sweatpants. Yeah. Oh, it was fun. I like this. This jazz is good. Uh, just a couple more. Mental Fear Productions, which is uh, a duo out of Germany. They've recorded under Dark Invaders, which is how I got into them. And uh, Ian Thrust, Chromatic. Uh, they've got a bunch of other names. They did a remastered MP3 collection of records of their basically like hard techno type stuff. Now they're doing Mental Fear Productions as more of a Doomcore unit, but I have MP3s of all these records. Some of them have become wildly expensive, and other ones are just the shipping's four times what it, the record costs. But uh, this is the antithesis of jazz. This is like bonehead, <laughs> hard techno, like pounding beats. But I, it's funny, I just re-listened to this collection today, and even though it sounds like a 14-year-old made it on Fruity Loops half the time... It does in the best way. Like the first song on it, I'm like, I've used that sound before. Like, <laughs> but it, it just for me, it's a definitely like a more than a lot of things on this list. Like, you, it, it's like to most people they'd hear this and be like, why? But it's, it's got the beeps. It's got the boops. Yeah, it's you know, it's hard techno. So it's it's techno, but it it's coming from a sort of more of a hardcore techno kind of a feeling. But it's not. It's not all the way to that gabber phase. Um, it's somewhere in between the two, and it's for as as cheesy as it can feel sometimes. Like it, it really hits it for me, and I, I just love these these two German dudes. Like most other shit, like this does not work for me on one level or another. But they always typically they they hit this right spot, this right balance for me. Uh, that was really good. You can get that on Bandcamp. I gotta mention uh, Cold Spring reissued Doom Engine by Mothra. It's a great LP. The presentation's fucking gorgeous. It sounds wonderful. I have the original CD, so I didn't really like need it, but the that's not very easy to get, so this LP is a wonderful reissue. 
And then Black Editions did a bunch of great reissues, but the ones that stuck out to me the most were Toho Sara, which is this... It, it sounds like a Halo Minash record that just came out of Japan 10 years or 20 years before they even got started. It's basically psychedelic drone music with traditional Asian instrumentation and, and some improvised in, uh, instrumentation, but it's coming from the guys who did Mainliner and Psychedelic Speed Freaks and High Rise and Acid Mother's Temple. So it's like this super group of Japanese noise psych rock guys doing like mega fucking drugged out psychedelic drone shit and it it, i listened to it the first time when i was uh in the middle of a really bad depressive episode and also having insane stomach problems and i thought like possibly i was dying and my spirit (laughs) was leaving my body kind of a thing i was just laying in my back room like oh fuck but wonderful reissue and then Again, another reissue I personally didn't need because I'm lucky enough to own an original copy of the album, but Black Editions did a reissue of White Heavens Out, which is their first, uh, well, not really their first album, but like the one everyone knows because it's the most readily available, and it's a fucking gorgeous reissue. Just a wonderful piece of wax, wonderful presentation of the art, and it's one of the most seminal psychedelic Japanese psychedelic rock albums of all time. It's we've we've reviewed it on the show before. It's uh yeah. It's it's fucking great. You know, it's so nice to be able to buy like they're 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 reissuing a lot, a lot of stuff too that's never come out on on vinyl before and they're doing a wonderful job of it. So there's a shitload of other really good reissues that came out last year and uh well 2020 and 2021, but these are the ones I own and I can attest to their excellence. So that is, those are all of my Disco Box recommendations for 2020. We're not going to close it all the way, because we might open it back up. We'll, just, we'll leave a rock in there like you do with a door that locks behind you, so we're just, eh. Talk about some video games now. Okay. Some of which uh, you've played, some of which I've only played. But let's, let's start out with something simple, which I'm not going to delve super far into, but it was what I consider probably the game of 2020 for... The world, which was Animal Crossing: New Horizons. Mm, yes, um, the perfect game for a quarantine. Yeah, and I mean, like it's 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 great. It's def. It's, you're right. It's the perfect game for a quarantine because it's you can do things that almost feel like work, but without the stress of actual work, and sure. you can get things done. And it's a lovely little game. Um, I, it's not. I hadn't played an Animal Crossing since the first one, and it's the game is adorable. It's a lot of fun, but it's also, you know, one of those games that doesn't really have an ending. Uh, as many of our listeners will probably know, I'm not a big online gamer, so I don't mainly because I don't have the same platform to play a lot of online games with people that we hang out with. Yeah. Albeit, now a lot of us is PS5, so maybe that'll change in the coming years. Probably not. Probably not. So, I like I like games that have an end. I like to beat something. Yeah. So, I played Animal Crossing for a very long time and then stopped and yeah. haven't picked it up since. I bought my wife her own Switch because she wanted to play it herself and she played it for like a couple months and has touched her switch the amount of times i can count she's touched her switch since she put it down i can count on 
One hand. Yeah. I love to so, watch your wife touch her switch. Yeah, you do, you little slut. Another one which I haven't finished but started playing again recently, which I'm only going to briefly touch on, is the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Mm. I kind of put it down because other games that I really wanted to play came out, and it was also getting a PS5 update, which finally came out. So, um, But that game is gorgeous. I think it... I had a huge problem with the previous, most recent Final Fantasy game that came out. I was talking to one of our buddies about this recently. It's It, it was just a mess for me combat-wise to play. It was hard to see everything on the screen. This game does it perfectly where it's not really turn-based like the original, but you can switch between your characters and it's very fluid and very smooth and the game is fucking gorgeous. Uh, but it's only like one part of Final Fantasy VII, so they're going to be making others eventually, albeit now Square Enix is talking about NFT stuff and everyone's fucking groaning. Definitely think it's worth the check out. We have a hardcore Final Fantasy uh, nerd friend who's beat it several times by now, and I think he platinumed it, and he, I think he, he, he even did some crazy shit with the original uh, Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, well, he was off of uh, work when it came out, so yes. because of COVID, and was happier than a pig in shit, much in the way that when I got sick with COVID and got Demon Souls, you know, two days before that, which we'll talk about. Yeah, and then he was real, real pissed about the fact that um, you, uh, I remember they announced the DLC for it, and he's like, "What do you mean it's only for fucking PS5? That's bullshit." Yeah, but um. One that I'm going to spend a little bit more time on, but try not to ruin a story beats of, is probably my favorite game that I've played in the last few years, which got a lot of flack online, and we've talked about it personally, and I'm not going to get too much into the controversies about it, because I think it's stupid, is The Last of Us Part Two, And I'm going to start this, I don't, mind you, this list, I don't remember what we've talked about over the last year, we've had few and far between episodes, so... But this is just the things that I've experienced over 2020 and 2021. Last of Us 2, I think, is better than the original. I think the original is a lot more of a bare-bones zombie story that happens to have another story in it, as opposed to The Last of Us 2 is a revenge story that happens to have zombies in it. You know what I mean? So mm. it's like... The focus of the first one felt more zombie-oriented and like, yeah, there's this other storyline, but the fucking Last of Us 2 is just straight brutality and nihilism and revenge. I love revenge things, sure. revenge movies, revenge Violent stories. Cop comes to mind. Yeah, it's, it's just... Any Takeshi Kitano film comes yeah. to mind. <laughs> and we all, we all know how much we love B. Takeshi on this podcast, yeah. but the game is gorgeous it's got details in it that you might not like really notice when you actually play it, uh, if you, unless you like really look at it. And I highly recommend it. It's one of the few games that I've I've beaten it twice now. Um, I did a new game plus because I don't know a couple like a few months ago I had a really like bad depressive episode, so I was like, well, looks like I'm gonna play both Last of Us games and watch Neon Genesis Evangelion again. Sure, gotta feel terrible. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's great. The acting is phenomenal in that game. The story beats are really well done and really well plotted out, in my opinion. 
there's like a lot of quality of life uh, changes that happened as far as like the game play loop and the way certain things interact. And it's just that gameplay loop for me, man. I mean, the story is top-notch, but also that gameplay loop, the, the combat just feels so heavy and chunky and real and, like, good. And um, I, you know, it's supposed to be a survival horror game, but I very much played the second one like I was an angel of fucking death mm. and uh, did not leave a single thing alive on any map I was on. And because uh, the first one, there's like the, a part towards the end. There's a part towards the end where the first time I played it, I was able to kill like 20 enemies just by doing the same thing. Like I'd hide behind a wall, walk out, slit somebody's throat, come back. And then like a guy would see be like, hey, what's that over there? And run over. And the AI in this version, in the second one, is like a lot smarter but it still felt like so organic and living like it, the the combat felt alive in the way you interacted with certain characters and there's still like my second playthrough there was like kill animations that I'd never seen before that happened and it's very very well done also made me really into um really buff girls so you know I get that. Oof, and I'm not talking about like you know a girl who's in good shape and skinny and might have abs. I'm talking about like Grumpy, arms bigger than a, me. Yeah, yeah crush a watermelon. With yeah, thighs. I'm not going like Mrs. Universe style, but like pretty like you know pretty buff. MMA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my top favorite games that's come out of the last decade. Sure. Uh, one that we both played, which is Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah. Love that game. Uh, it took me a little extra time to finish it because, uh, and I was talking to somebody else about this, open world fatigue got to me at one point, and I was going to platinum it, and then I got to the point where I was like, ah, I don't want to run around and do all this shit, but I loved the combat in that game. The story was, was pretty good. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't the best storyline I ever did, but... It was, you could pretty much, you knew the story like five yeah. minutes into the game. Yeah, yeah not, not every game I play needs to have a... Sure. Crazy, Gun super well written story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I love that game. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I I enjoyed it. I did eventually platinum it. I got. I was like one percent away from platinuming it, and then I had switched over to whatever else, and just was like uh, putting it off. And then it was funny when I did platinum it. I went back to it after just having played Neo for a month and a half, and so the controls are similar but different. <laughs> Much in the same way that I had gone from um, beating Red Dead Redemption 2 all the way through for the first time, and then straight into Ghost of Tsushima, and instead of making my horse go faster, it would make me jump off my horse, <laughs> and I was like, this is maddening. Um, but, yeah, it was like trying to, the last thing I had to do was kick a guy off of a ledge and kill him that way, and I could not, I kept doing the wrong combo to kick, like I kept doing the Neo thing, and I... Cause, and that's right, I was playing Bloodborne right before I played Neo, and they have, again, similar controls, but you cannot remap them to be the same. So fucking frustrating. Constantly, like, wasting health items or <laughs> blocking when I think I was going to dodge or vice versa. And, um, yeah, I think that a lot of people like Ghost of Tsushima more than I did. I, I mean, I really liked it, and I platinumed it. So, you know, I mean, I liked it enough to do you that. You did put in the time. Yeah, and I also play very few open world games 
playing the two of them back to back was the most I'd played in years um, outside of Near Automata, which is like is open world, but like isn't kind of in the one sense. Not really, it's, I mean, it's a lot more linear. Yeah, yes, and uh, I'd say like semi open world. Yeah, I mean it is in the sense of you can go places, but it's one of those, and really all open worlds are like this, where it's like if you're not doing the story, then but there's there's no liberation missions in that game where there are in Ghost of Tsushima. The the biggest the only things I really want to say about it are I immediately put it into Japanese not knowing that all the lip sync yes, was the for same English thing. and that was very frustrating. I know that they've changed that since but uh, I don't think I'll it would be a very long time before I play it again. Um, that was frustrating. I played it originally in black and white Kurosawa mode which was cool but you miss a ton of the indicators for things happening visually. Also the game is so gorgeous and why put it yeah, in black and white yeah so after like 10 hours of that i was like this is not working for me and uh as i do in all open world games i decided to take on challenges that are reasonable later way before i should have <laughs> including fighting a boss of a fortress area when i didn't have the style to like uh take down shields and he had a big shield and it was incredibly difficult but i was like super committed and locked into that uh, and my only other, you know, it's the kind of game where it's easy to platinum in a single playthrough, and you also, without trying, will basically be able to max out your character and everything, and being a Souls player primarily, that's so alien to me, and in the one sense it's nice, but on the other sense it's like, it's just not that challenging. It was like I constantly did things to make the game harder for myself, including not using any heavy armor after a certain point, um, you know, not using certain kinds of ninja weapons or doing stealth takedowns. And I tried to spend the game playing as much like a traditional samurai as possible. And by the end, when you do the duels, the timing is like impossible. It's just like fucking playing a slot machine. And maybe my reflexes. You mean the standoffs? Yes. Uh, yeah, not the duels. Because I'd say the duels are the best part of the game. The duels are the best part of the game. And I feel like there should have been more, but... The standoffs were frustrating, because I loved doing them, but it was like, A, if you, when you're at the max level, and especially if you wear one piece of armor, you can get like seven kills or six kills in a row before the end of a standoff, if you time them all perfectly. So you can like kill an entire group and just be done. And so like that... You know, but you had to get that first one right, and it was it was just I guess my reflexes. I'm old, my brain's fucked up, but like I half the time was like I press that fucking button, and uh, but you know they were at the end of the day for a game I put as much time into it as I did, and for as gorgeous and fun and like overall like rewarding combat and you know fun story, and it gives you a lot of options. Like if you wanted to be an archer based character, you could do that, and. Uh, if you want to do, you know, more stealth stuff, you could. But for the most part, I was always like, let me walk into town, let them know I'm here, and then just start dicing up motherfuckers. And uh, I listened to a lot of uh, Wu-Tang and related stuff <laughs> for a while. It was, like, very fun soundtrack to have, like, you know, old-school martial arts film samples. and Yeah, I definitely think if I end up doing a new game plus for that, I'm going to put it on the hardest difficulty. Yeah. Because what it really does is it both you and and the enemy do more damage so i guess it gives a little bit more realism to the idea of actually fighting with a sword cuz like 
you know, you're not going to hit somebody with a sword fucking five times. Ten, yeah. five, five, ten times before they go down. You're going to hit them maybe twice. Yeah. That's how I played it. And it, it definitely, I think I might have started on a level right below that for a little bit. And then I was talking to Weston and he was like, you need to kick it up a notch. Yeah, because um, the like the talismans or whatever in that game, you could. Oh yeah, I didn't. You I, could you could get like there's there's an armor set that allows you to like break blocks, and will put them off guard, and you can stack talismans on top of that. Like I did one of the boss fights, and I like it was too e- like way too easy. Yeah. Like I. Yeah, and the other one that's really wonderful is there's. Um, there's a couple where it's like status, like fear and panic attacks can happen. And so later, eventually you earn the ability to like put your sword on fire. And so if you kill one guy with the fire sword, like you could send them all into a panic and you stack your talismans. And it was like, so I'm just constantly doing that, which was cool in the one sense. But yeah, I mean, it was, that was the biggest problem is like, it was so easy to break the game. And I understand the DLC adds more challenge than this, that and the other, but it was like, I, I'm good. Like, I, I, you know, I had less complaints than I did about Red Dead Redemption 2, but Red Dead Redemption 2 overall had a better, more engaging story, and so yeah, I still think that is a better game, but... And they also, both had the same issue, where it's like, I, I didn't want to play a ninja game. Yeah. I wanted to play a samurai game, but they force you into the ninja pathway, which is understandable, because it's like the storyline, but... Both Red Dead and this, it's like I want to play my way, and yeah. you're forcing me to play a different way. Yeah. That that and that is, of course, I think with Red Dead more than anything, not to get too far afield, but it's like for a game that's supposed to be that open and that big, and they offer you all this illusion of choice. Th- there's so little choice in yeah. that game most of the time. You're on a fucking rail, and it's and it's an overall issue with you know. I, I was just talking to somebody the other day about this, like. GTA 5 was the same thing in GTA 4 before that, but GTA 5 was, was when it really started. It. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Where it was just like, this is not how I want to, like, this isn't what I want, you know? This is this is not how I want to behave. These aren't... No, I, it was something different. I was talking to Christian about it. Was it Christian? Yeah, because he was telling me, he was like, yeah, I remember when GTA 5 came out and I was in high school, I was like, oh, right, you're a child. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, anyway, keep going. Um, so I didn't play this in 2020, I don't think, because I don't think my PS5 came until January, maybe, mm-hmm. 2021, but I think it's the better game versus the original, even though it's much shorter, and I feel like the older I get, I'm, like, totally okay with, like, a 20, 30, <laughs> even 12-hour game. Like, I'll pay $60 for it if I get, like, a really good experience out of it. Uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales. Ah. I loved it. I thought the con- like it was a little bit tighter mm. than Marvel Spider-Man. Um, it was one of the games that like just graphically for the PS5, I felt like really showed it off. Uh, the way you could see snow hitting the suit and like melting on this, it was just the game's fun. And I was talking to somebody, I was talking to Ryan about this, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, I tried Spider-Man and like." I just, it's just not for me. I was like, listen, if you played the original Spider-Man game, like, the story's just another Spider-Man story. Like, if you read any Spider-Man comic, it's the same fucking shit, you know? And it, the main thing is, like, if you want to be Spider-Man and you like swinging around and beating up bad guys as Spider-Man, like, this is the game for you. If not, not so much. But 
the first Spider-Man game, very, you know, like I said, comic book storyline. Yeah. Nothing surprising. Did not see anything coming, which is fine, but, like, I was a little bit disappointed because, like, especially with the way Marvel is nowadays and they've got this history of writing all this stuff. But the gameplay, great. Right. Gameplay, great. Game yeah, looked great. I, I played it at your house. Yeah. It's like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah, it just feels good. Yeah, it does. Miles Morales, though, it hits on, like, a lot of different stuff because it, it like, you know, hits on him being half black and half Latinx and, like... It, it you see a different part of the city than Peter Parker would, uh-huh. uh, and I played it during a like a three day snowstorm. Ah, wonderful. Yeah, so like I'd pause it, I'd go outside, I'd smoke a cigarette, and I'm like, man, I'm glad I live in an apartment right now. I don't have to shovel any of this mountain of fucking snow. Yeah. Uh, I that game was gorgeous, and it's one of those. It's one of the few games that. Um, I feel is like truly optimized for net what is now current gen consoles because most of the time you either you can put on RTX or you can put on 60 FPS. But Insomnia Games did this thing where they're like, so your cinematics not going to be in 4K uh, and the city will be a little bit less populated. But I've never noticed the difference. And then you get you get both you get 60 FPS and you get the R- RTX ray tracing like. Absolutely gorgeous game. Looked beautiful. The music in it was... Mm. I'll never know when I play it, but... Yeah, it's it's super good. Um, I, I talked about Control. That was another one I played in 2020 that I absolutely loved. Demon's Souls. Now, I haven't played nearly as much as you. Let's save it, though. I want to. Let's talk about this in 2020. You want to save that for 2020? Because I, I want to close out with the most controversial game of 2020. Unless you've got anything else. Spirit Fair, play Spirit Fair if you're looking for something that's kind of like farming-esque with slight platforming. Beautiful game, absolutely gorgeous. All hand-drawn stuff, really heartfelt and good. Um, Resident Evil 3, another controversial one that I loved. Everyone was so mad, oh, it's too short, and they cut out a bunch of stuff. First of all, and this may be, this may be sacrilege... Now, I do love the original Resident Evil. I've beat it several times. We have a playthrough that we need to finally finish. Sure. Uh, I love that game. But would I love to see that game fully updated in another remake? Where it's the over-the-shoulder camera and everything's on the new RE engine? Yes, God, I would love to go to the Spencer Mansion. I don't care. Like, I don't need the fixed camera angles and weird, you know... Weird aiming, like, I, I just, I wanted to be, like, the remakes of 2 and 3. Sure. Uh, I thought the remake of 3 was perfect, and it was at a time where I was playing, like, a lot of really long games. I had played a few open-world games, so, like, I wanted something that was, like, cut, dry. I know what Resident Evil is when I get it, and it was delivered to me. Yeah, they cut out some stuff from the original, like, there was, like, a choice system in the original, and they cut out, like, um... Oh, they cut out a whole part. I think it was like Graveyard and the Clock Tower, I believe. Um, were cut out. I didn't care that much. I fucking loved it. I thought yeah. it was really cool. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I highly recommend it. Resident Evil games are never long anyway. Yeah. It doesn't fucking matter. When we were kids and playing them, they were terrifying and super long. But as adults, you're... Because basically... we were bad at things. Yeah, and you know now you play them and you, know, you sort of realize that 
they're whether you're looking to optimize them for a speed run or just like saying well i don't mind dumping another 10 hours maybe this time five and doing it a little bit better like you know because the best thing is with those games is most of the time at least for the first half you feel that real terror of like i don't have enough of anything you know i'm trying right. to get through but then once you kind of get your your feet on it you're like, oh, I know what to do. And it's the great thing about Ligari 2 where they do the mix em up on the second playthrough. And so, you know, things become harder. And, and um, yeah. No, I, I I have to say, I'm the same way. I don't think that there should be... It's like buying records. I remember when I was a kid, I would say, I'm not paying a dollar for a minute of music, you know. It, I had a big problem buying Grindcore stuff, especially like 10-minute records and all the rest. Now... I fucking pray for a short release. You know, I love repetition and longness and all that other shit, but, like, as a 34-year-old man with a life full of shit I gotta do, like, if you give me a 20-minute EP that's, like, fire, then that's fine. I don't skip the album, you know what I mean? Like, just just, just condense it for me, and games are the same way. I yeah, it also it. gives it replay value, you know what I mean? If you yeah. can beat a game in 10 hours, but, you know, you know, not even, like, like they're you can pl- you can actually beat it in five like and that's attainable as yeah. opposed to like you know some people beat fucking resident evil games in like an hour but yeah um that's i like that yeah and i did do like a semi speed run playthrough i beat the game in six hours and it was lovely and i yeah. loved it and everything looks gorgeous in that game all the monsters are goopy and scary and all the people look really good and the RE engine is honestly, I think, one like top tier shit. Like yeah. Capcom crushing it. I suck their dick every year. I'm gonna keep on sucking. Yeah, it's nice to have one of the Japanese companies like mostly pulling it out. And they seem like they care about their franchises, which is Konami. something that a lot of uh video game companies don't do nowadays. Sega Konami. Sega Konami. Laundry list of others. Yeah. Um one other one other final game before we get up to the controversial that I wanted to bring up is one of my favorites. Uh, I have I'm I it's one of those games that I can pick up and put down and pick up and put down. It's what I use roguelites for is I'm gonna play a little bit of this and I'm gonna put it down. Maybe I'll get silly with it later. I don't know. But Hades, man, I know oh, it technically yeah. came out like a while ago, but it dropped for Switch in 2020, and Man, that game is beautiful. It plays really nice. Frank made me look like an idiot because uh, his first playthrough, he got further than I'd ever did. Uh, first time ever playing the game. Uh, but I love that game. I haven't beaten it yet. I, I, no one's here to say that I'm good at roguelites. We all know, or, or lights or likes or whatever, we all know I'm not, but I love that game. I think I talked about it on an episode already. You did, yeah. But um, it, it's an, it's awesome. It's one of those where, if my backlog wasn't so long, I would totally buy that because just it both the feeling of it and the art style is fucking fantastic. Top notch. Top notch. But you want to talk about yeah, yeah, the one, the only. Da, 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 I would can we get the sound clip where it's like the you know the song I'm talking about? Ah, uh, probably. Yeah, hold on.
Cyberpunk. 2077. You, you know, I live under a rock most of the time in regard to most video games, most movies, you know, the, the things that need to get to me between, you know, Ben or some of our other friends, the people, they tell me, they say, hey, we know you'll love this or you already love this thing. Be aware that this is happening. But otherwise... Most of my attention is focused jumping from music genre to music genre, trying to stay current with that. So I, of course, was aware that this was a game coming out, but I never played the Witcher series despite owning all of the games. And, uh, you know, everyone telling me for literally years, decades at this point to play them, how much I would love them, all that. I haven't done it. I had, uh, none of the expectations I did not wait for 10 years or whatever it was, you know, this has been in development allegedly. I mean, it was only really, really in development for a couple of years, but I just, it feels like it was I, in development for six months. Yeah. <laughs> bum, bum, uh, you know, the hype train came, went, and I wasn't even near came, the station. Came, went, missed the station, derailed. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was so lovely for me. It was, I received it as a gift and from one of my friends for early Christmas or late birthday, and I was just like, if it's good, great. If it's not, I don't care. I have zero investment. And I fucking loved it. And I played it on the computer. So that has to be said. I can completely understand from a consumer perspective, like, it was a abhorrent what they did as far as releasing it broken on platforms. that Wait, they wow. Could. I to get that. Yeah. But, you know, to only speaking from my own gameplay experience... Running it, and I was running a 760 Radon card, like not even a 1080 or anything like that. My computer could barely handle it most of the time, and I had some off and on issues. But for the most part, it was not terrible. I, you know, I learned ways to optimize it for my extremely low power between my CPU and my graphics card. I eventually... Basically, right before beating it, my buddy gave me his ticking time bomb of a t 1080 <laughs> that used to be a Bitcoin mining graphic card. Hasn't blown up yet. Um, and I got to enjoy it with much better graphics and, and smoothness of gameplay. And I will, I, I have to laugh because every big patch they've done, which is really few and far between, and all the claims of all the things they're going to do to keep it alive have obviously all uh, been bullshit. But it runs worse in its more most recent patched versions than it ever did on my first playthrough. Uh, but I put over 100 hours and in three achievements short of platinuming it, and which was not, again, something I expected to do, but kind of happened naturally because I fucking enjoyed the shit out of it. Like, the with the character I decided to create worked really well with the gameplay to make it fun and challenging for a good portion of it. And then just like a wild power fantasy in the later portions, I played it on the hardest difficulty. And they, before they patched some things, like it used to be that enemies with magnums could just one-shot you from super far away. Uh, and I, as always in most games, rarely go on upgrade paths that increase my maximum health. I always feel like offense is the best defense. So... In late game, it was like I would just die in an instant if I got caught, you know, it didn't, uh, if I stopped moving at any point. But if I could just kill everybody fast enough or use the wildly overpowered sniper rifle you get from Pan Am uh, that shoots through walls and has a scope that sees through walls and you can just like sit like, a, you know, city over and gun everybody in a, in a stronghold. 
I fucking loved it. I loved the music. I loved the aesthetics of it. I loved the story. And I replayed it again this past summer. And it was interesting to see how when I wasn't trying to squeeze every ounce of juice out of the fruit, um, damn, that story goes by mighty quick. The main, the main campaign is like, it's so wonderful, but it's so clear that on every aspect of the game, they ran out of time. The amount of like systems that are perfect or balanced are almost non-existent, Mm -hmm. but uh, there's still a lot to like there. If you can like me walk through all the noise on all sides of the arguments about the game, um, it certainly is a flagship for uh, the massive problems in the games industry and other things like that on every scope from the development to the way that hype is done to the way that things are released. And, but there's a, there's a lot to like, and I, I was really emotionally invested in the story and I don't give a shit about stories and almost anything with games. Like that's not why I play games anymore and hasn't been for a decade. And I was, I was like there, there's a lot of endings. I ran through most of them. (laughs) They're some of them super depressing, like bring tears to my eyes. And there were subplots that did that too. And I know, you know, my understanding is if I liked this, then like I would be on, I would be in love with The Witcher 3, and I'm sure here's, that's true. Here's the thing, and I this is something I kind of wanted to bring up. So, and I was, I was talking to Ryan a lot for like a while the other day. And um, so what I've played of Cyberpunk, I very much like. Uh, I had had some issue, not as, nothing game-breaking when I was playing it on my PS4. Then I... Uh, bought my PS5, but I had to wait, so I was like, oh, I'll just play it on my PS5. And then they were like, oh, the PS5 version's gonna be coming out, so I was like, I'm gonna put it down. That was, like, over a year ago. I don't know if they're actually gonna put the PS5 version yeah. at this point, but I really like what I played of it and the way the world was set up. Yeah, you know, it's it's a real shame that it didn't get to be what it could have been, and it's really awful all the things that happened. We're not gonna get into the controversies. There's thousands of videos that are that can put it way more eloquently than I can on YouTube about like the everything about it and everything um I, I think like the escapist uh the escapist show even covered it at one point which I don't even think is a show on their channel anymore because they've done it in like two or three months but anyway I've tried to play The Witcher 3 like four times and every time I get to, like, roughly the same spot, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Yeah. I don't know if it's just not for me. Same thing last year, I tried to play Skyrim for, like, the second time. And I was like, eh. Yeah. Maybe this just isn't for me. Yeah. And it's nice being at that age where I'm like, that's okay. It doesn't yeah. have to be. Yeah. I don't have to like every super hyped game. But I'm here to tell you that you might not like The Witcher 3. You probably will. But yeah. you might not like it. Uh, in comparison to cyberpunk, because they're different games. They're very, very different games. Yeah, and the thing that really kicked cyberpunk up a notch for me is, besides, like, that all being what I'm already into, uh, other than the actual role-playing game it's based on, but, you know, aesthetics and all that. I mean... I mean, you've got the words cyber and punk tattooed down the sides of your dick. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the, the big thing is, like, from a music perspective, the... The score is, I fucking love, like, it's this wonderful mix of, you know, electronic stuff and then more kind of movie score things, but the the themes are really good, and I 
I almost always immediately turn off the music in any game I play, and I kept I kept it on in Cyberpunk for the first couple of weeks I was playing it, and they have a, there's a bunch of different radio stations which cover different genres, but like GTA, they're actually all really good, and you could listen to any of them, but there's one that has a bunch of sort of hardcore techno-ish type stuff. And so that eventually sent yeah. me back into a really raging, you know, two month long, uh, nothing but hardcore techno and that kind of shit, which uh, was ugly for everyone around me, but good for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was if the I think the thing that, you know, it wasn't just not having expectations. I mean, it was that, but like more ac- acutely, it was. I did not go into cyberpunk expecting it to be a life sim set in a cyberpunk world. And they kind of build it that way, you know, and I, I didn't go in, like, I just, I like a good core gameplay loop. And like I said, the way I did the combat was really fun for me. And, you know, the, the worst part of the game is the amount of loot management and selling that you do is like. I spend as much time in and out of like the cell and break down inventory screens as I do doing anything else, but you don't necessarily have to do it that way. It certainly makes the game easier in the long run because you're always flush with cash. But, but it, it, it was, it was to my play style. Like it was like, you could so easily get into combat at any turn anywhere. And it was, you know, the constant diversions, a map that's like so overly littered. And yeah, is it unfortunate that, you know, they made it look like you could eat at all these places and they have all this stuff, but then all you can do is, like, buy food for your inventory that's totally useless and have all these items to pick up everywhere that are useless. Like, yeah, but, like, okay, they ran out of time on that, and, like, I just don't care about that. Like, I, I mean, mean, here's the thing. Even if they did do that, who fucking cares? Are you really gonna fucking... Uh, oh, man, you know, this this one restaurant, that's the one I, I like this one. Like, no, you're not gonna do that. And we've talked about it on the show before, you know, and I think we'll we'll end here. But it, it we we've been part of you know we're part of the generation that has seen the most rapid advancements in games and all that kind of stuff. And so since we were kids, we've been hearing outlandish and outrageous promises as to what games are going to deliver in order for you to get excited about them. And I was one of the people that your heard, choices really affect the whole world. Right. I've I've I was there for the original sales pitches of Stalker, and shockingly, Stalker was one of the few games that, even though it turned into vaporware and was like you know had a seven year development cycle and all this stuff, they actually delivered on a lot of stuff. Buggy as hell and all fucked up, but you know a lot of times, most of the time, no. 100% of the time, they never tell you... They never give you what they're going to... They claim that they're going to give you for anything that's remotely ambitious. But if you don't ever believe that stuff in the first place, then you're not going to be disappointed, and you can still wind up with games that are really fun. And we all know that like when they do give you this allegedly fully interactive world, you could wind up with a game like Shinmu, which is hilarious for a YouTube clip, but like not a game anybody would ever want to play anymore. You yes, know, and the thing is that that game is a game where every single character in the game has their own life cycle. Yeah, but as cool as that is, who gives a shit? Right. Do you really want that? Right, and so you know, so it's just it's uh, it's just not. Like you said, it's just not a thing that most of us need. And 
there will always be games that wind up being wonderful time sync type games, whether it's, you know, Skyrim is just another version of what was the game that you brought up first? Um, Animal Crossing, you know, it's like, it's basically the same kind of thing in the sense of the way it becomes for people that love it. It's like a house, you know, decorating simulator. It's a do mindless bullshit for no one simulator. Uh, it's a, you know, an endless game without a, an end. And there's a main quest, but that's like, yeah, whatever. But, you know, it can fill that same kind of hole. And I, I did that with Morrowind. So it was like when Oblivion and then eventually, like I remember the promises of Morrowind and I remember the promises of Oblivion. See, the thing is I played Oblivion and I loved Oblivion. Sure. And I'm not saying anything against it, but it was like I got mine out early from an Elder Scrolls perspective with Morrowind. Like I dumped an entire summer into Morrowind. Let's just put it that way. As a kid. So that meant like all my time, like thousands of hours in the course of, you know, a hundred days. And... I never wanted to do that again after that. It was like, but I completely understood and understand like why people loved Oblivion and then why Skyrim, which was so perfectly suited for modding and came out, you know, it, it just did all those things and did them better. I got it. But like, I'm also, I just don't have that kind of time. So, I mean, you know, yeah, you said earlier, like, you know, we're, we're adults. We have responsibilities. We're in our thirties. It's like, I, I, I have a rule. If, if I'm playing a game for two hours and I don't want to keep, like, playing it, I'm not going to keep playing it. Back in the day, yeah, like, when I was younger, like... You, when you had less options <clears throat> anyway, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, yeah, you know, I'll fucking, I'll beat this anyway. But, like, I'm, I'm not going to sink a bunch of time into a game that I'm not having fun with almost immediately because games are a time investment and yeah. I have other games I can play. Trust me, I have a giant backlog of things I need to play that I'm finally working through because I'm broke right now. Yeah. But, like, yeah, it's just one of those things that's, like, I, w- I was playing Skyrim and I was like, meh. Yeah. And and I and I, I know I said my last comment was my last, but this is really it. I will say that the one thing that is kind of funny is that the problem I had and the reason why I liked Cyberpunk so much more than Ghost of Tsushima or Red Dead Redemption 2 was that for games that offer you these wonderful characters and long stories and all this stuff, although much better story and acting in uh, Red Dead, like, but you don't, you're always on stuck on a line. That isn't cyberpunk for all of its failings. Like, you know, yeah. Okay. Your choices at the beginning of like what your backstory is mean nothing, mean, mean literally nothing and all that. But as far as quests and shit go, like, you can just fail stuff. Like, whether it's failing the romances completely or deciding to complete the quests in ways that, like, the other characters don't like and then it ends their storylines, like, that is 100% possible. And when it comes to the endings, like, you can do everything from fucking killing yourself to a bunch of different stuff and there's no, like, press a button to get this ending. Everyone is, like, you know, substantially different, has a long post-game part, and all of that shit, and I really appreciate that. Like, it was not a game I could do all the things in one playthrough, which is why I did a second playthrough. I still pick the same romantic partner, because Pan Am's the fucking best, but... I mean, that's, you know, that's... that's You know, for all their families with Cyberpunk, uh, CD, CD, Project, CD Project Red, that's side quests and story beats, like, that's what they do. Yeah. You know, and if they're not good at it, like... they we have left. Yeah. So, uh, we are going to break this into two parts, yeah. we've decided. So, um, 
We will see you on the next BDMFT. Which will be our catch-up of 2021. It will be. Later, nerds. Later.